I'm gonna have to like change what I say. Do I recommend this? Yes, just only to the queer people with the caveat that it's annoyingly written. <laughs> oh, that's okay. There's plenty of like mediocre straight fiction. So like we can have a few mediocre fantasy books. That's no problem. Thank you. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Read It and Roast. I'm Claire. And I'm Alex. And we're your hosts. The concept is simple. Someone recommends us a book, we read it, then invite them onto our show to tell them what we really thought of it. And at the end, we decide, is this book a read or a roast? Stay tuned as we'll be releasing one episode a month until the end of the year. If you like our show, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Read It and Roast and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, Read It and Roast. Welcome to Read It and Roast. It's me, the G. Good to be here today. Thanks for having me on, Claire. Where's Thank that sexy you. accent from? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm originally from Texas, born and raised. Houston, Texas. That's that's where that accent is from. Get me a little bit of drunk and uh, maybe you'll hear a drawl, according to my partner. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> Tell us about what you do for a living. I am a software developer by trade. I'm your classic <laughs> granola lesbian in software <laughs> engineering. What kind of reader are you and what role does reading play in your life? Growing up, I was definitely that book nerd in the family, but I feel like in college, like it kind of fell to the wayside. So I don't know. Now it's a source of leisure. I'm definitely more sporadic about it, but I feel really good about it whenever I get back to it. On the day-to-day, I'm reading a lot of technical stuff for my job, so it's it's nice to be able to like fall into this sort of thing and get lost in a world of high fantasy. So do you um, read a lot of fantasy because you're looking for something super different from technical? I am really drawn to like high fantasy. I think it's just a world that's really easy for me to get drawn into. What book have you recommended for us today and why? Today, we're going to be talking about Priory of the Orange Tree. Which, growing up, I I read a lot of, in addition to the fantasy, I read a lot of romance. At this age, I'm very comfortable with my queerness. And this book was recommended to me several years ago because it's very queer. I love that aspect of it. It, To me, it's like the literary version of, but I'm a cheerleader, like in, you know, in my experience. I love that movie. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that movie. That is my ginger snaps, Claire. Oh my God. That's my ginger snaps. I have complex feelings about the the story itself. So if someone was like, did you love the book? I'd be like, oh, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. Yeah, there's so much going on. For sure. It's fun when someone recommends something with nuance like that, that yeah. you can take parts you enjoy and other parts that you're like, I have something to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably why it's really good material for, uh, for us today. Yeah. Oh, let's get into it. Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon, high fantasy, taking place in a world where dragons are real. There are different kinds of dragons. There are water dragons. There are more fire dragons. There are evil dragons. There are good dragons. And then there's all these different creatures as well that were born of different couplings with dragons and other animals. There's a lot of different creatures that are implicated in the story. Our main action takes place a thousand years after a very important moment in the myth building that this world's societies are based off of. There were religions that were founded out of this uh, event, out of a great war against the evil dragons. And there are different versions of how that time went. We meet characters a thousand years after that time. One of the most important characters, if not the most important, is E. Durian. We later learned that she has a different name. I liked that her last name was Durian, or at least her cover was Durian, because it made me think of another fruit. And this is already a (laughs) a book about a priory tree, an orange tree. Eid is a servant of higher status in the court of Queen Sabrin. 
who is considered to be the descendant of the saint and Cleoland. So the saint was the knight who a thousand years prior defeated the dragon, married the princess of a different land, and then established this new lineage of which there have been 35, 36 rulers, all of them women, uh, all of them in names ending in A-N. Sabrin was the first one, but she's also the most recent one, and she is Sabrin the ninth of her name. I'm so Uh, excited to hear how y'all say all of their names. Like, I was actually saying her name as Sabron in my head. Claire actually listened to it on audiobook, and we were just having this discussion before. I was telling Alex that, like, you know, Samantha Shannon is obviously British, so is the narrator of the audiobook, but she utilizes different accents for different characters, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So some of the names are kind of pronounced a little differently based on who is she's speaking as, which I thought was really cool. So it was a really well done audiobook for sure. It's 25 hours, better be yeah, good. For sure. <laughs> One of the other main characters is Lord Archiloth Beck, or Loth, who is a noble of Sabrin's or Sabron's court. And Loth and his sister uh, Margaret were Sabrin's only friends growing up as well, because she has a very, very sheltered childhood at court, as most of the queens in this lineage we figure out have. And Loth is basically your quintessential knight. He's a really good friend. And he's actually very, very devout in his religion. He follows the religion that is actually imposed on everyone in Sabrin's kingdom called Virtudum, which means that he follows the saint and then the knights that were the saint's retinue. And he's is sent on, well, sent away against his will and against Sabrin's will as well sent away on a diplomatic mission to the east, which has been the longtime enemy of Innis, which is Sabrin's kingdom, because they serve and worship dragons in the east, whereas the west hates dragons. The third character is Tanay of Clan Miduchi from an island in the kingdom of Seiki, where they also worship dragons as gods. However, these are good dragons who swim underwater and who choose amongst uh, some trained warriors, they will choose their riders. And then this rider has a lifelong bond with their dragon. Tane eventually is chosen by a dragon named uh, Nayimathun. <laughs> I'm really winging it on the pronunciation. You're fine. You're I, think great. I think it's Nayimathun or Nayimathan. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike other dragons, doesn't want Tane to address her as a god, but instead to address her as an equal and as a sister. Those are the main characters, right? Oh, no. The, the oh, no. Nicklaes. Yeah. yeah. Nicklaes Ruse, who is an alchemist who Sabrin banished from court because he was unable to create the elixir of eternal life for her. Because as many queens have discovered, you have to have an heir in order to maintain stability in your kingdom. Sabrin does end up getting married to a prince from a kingdom called Mentenden. Mentenden, thank you. She does seem to really like Obrecht. Um, however, he is unfortunately killed by assassins that infiltrate a plot to try to make the queen scared for her kingdom, but was not actually trying to kill her or her partner. There's lots of different factions that are trying to create instability in Innis, one of the factors being that the evil dragons, they're awake again. Sabre has waited quite a while to have a child. She is currently pregnant when her husband is killed, her consort is killed. And then when a second dragon shows up, she is attacked and loses the pregnancy. And mm-hmm. she then also loses the ability to have more children. But this is kept from the court. Eid gets sent away, much like Loth does, by the security master of court. Instead of being sent away to her death as he would like, because he thinks that she's getting too close to the queen, hint, hint, she is. She and Sabrin have started a relationship in the wake of her husband's death. And she escapes to the south because she's not actually Eid Durian brought in by an ambassador from another court. She is actually Edaz, and she belongs to a very ancient sect called the Priory of the Orange Tree. 
She returns to the Priory to find answers. Why are the dragons awakening? Why are they coming to attack us? And learns about the source of her magic because she can actually control physics around her. She has hypersenses because she ate of the fruit of the orange tree. We discover that this tree is only one of the sources of magical power in the world. There are two other trees. There's a mulberry tree and a hawthorn tree. And they all play important roles in different family lines, essentially, that are established in the period a thousand years before, including Tane, who learns that she is a descendant of the queen, the Poro. And she finds out her family has been the guardian of a very important gemstone that she discovers is actually hidden in her side. Essentially, there's two gemstones, the one that Tane has, a second gemstone that is discovered. Oh God, I'm drawing a blank now. Eid finds it while she's at the Priory and she has to use her blood to unlock a box, which gives her a key to a thing. It's the box actually that Loth brings because Loth, he goes to the East and then Don Marata Marosa, the princess of the Eastern Kingdom, reveals to him that her father is actually completely controlled and brain dead, essentially controlled by the dragon, the the big Mm -hmm. bad. She gives him a box and tells him to actually escape. She helps him leave by getting him infected by what's called the plague, because some of the bad dragons can actually infect you and then eventually kill you. And the rest of the world really lives in fear of this plague. And so yeah, Loth takes that box down. You're right. He takes it down to the Priory. And then eventually she unlocks the box, finds the second gem. And essentially what the world needs to happen, even if the characters don't know yet, is for Tane and Eid to meet up together with the gemstones and then use the dragons to fight the the good dragons to fight the evil dragons and bury the evil dragons in the depths of the abyss, which is an ocean. There's a sword too. (laughs) There's a lot more detail. I skipped a lot. You kept talking about it. I was like, oh my God, there's so much. There's just there's so, so much. much. <laughs> but as far as plots go, the alchemist plays an important role. Nicholas plays an important role in simply finding out information that then becomes revealed to the different characters. And it's interesting. He doesn't correspond with them really, but it's it's information uh, based on the history of their world that's revealed to us, the reader. Alliances are built with other kingdoms, including the 12 lakes, uh, which is kind of an interesting kingdom that sort of feels like it gets thrown in at the end because we have no characters that come from there. And then all of a sudden they make an alliance and it works out really well. And then they go and they fight the dragons and they win. (laughs) We also discover the truth. Saint had claimed that he and Princess Cleoland left together and started the new lineage that eventually gives us Sabrin. However, Clayland never left with the saint. She instead founded the Priory of the Orange Tree. And so that's why Eid feels so conflicted the whole time she's at court, because she's like, guys, this is not actually how it happened. And it's actually sacrilege, and you're not allowed to, to talk about a different version happening. There's also the story of yes, Kaliba. Yes, was trying to find right now. Kaliba, right? Yeah. I think her story was really interesting because she's mentioned throughout, they mentioned the Witch of the Woods, who has this like legend that she basically, she's like a La Llorona. She goes and she steals babies. As it turns out, she is a witch who has lived for thousands of years and she was in love with the saint and she actually pretended to be Cleoland and founded the initial dynasty with him. And once he discovered it, he was super upset. However... The damage was done. And so Sabrin is actually a descendant of the Switch. Yeah. Okay. I have already read this. This was my second time going through. It still blew my mind to get to that part where she reveals that she posed as Cleolin. And I completely forgot that the reason why this was so upset, upsetting this yeah. St. Gallian adopted him as a child. So mm-hmm. he, he essentially was like hooking up with his adoptive mother. And that's the whole reason that Sabran looks exactly the same as Kaliba. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's mentioned that all of the queens have looked exactly the same. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the first, in like her first descriptions even. Yeah, she was the biggest wild card, if you ask me. And so he hangs himself. He hangs himself from the tree that she got her power from, the Hawthorne tree, right? Mm-hmm. So Cleolin's whole line is the priory of the orange tree, and everybody who eats of that fruit still gets their powers. Kaliba got her powers from the Hawthorne tree, which is no longer alive. And then Tane's family 
who's descended from Naporo, gets their powers from the mulberry tree, which has also been cut down. Mm-hmm. But Tane then kind of gets to bypass the fact that there's no fruit for her by eating some of the orange tree fruit. And then ends up like mastering her magical powers within a matter of weeks in order to use them in the final battle against the evil dragons over the abyss. Yeah, so that's kind of something that frustrates me about this is like, I feel like for the first like 30% of the book, it's like really slow and you know, a lot of world building and or maybe even like 40%. Like, I don't know, like it feels like a large first chunk of the book. And then all of a sudden, like the last half of the book feels very rushed to me. I don't know. It's so much crammed into one novel. The the cadence of the whole book is is essentially what kind of frustrates me. I think you totally took the roast out of my mouth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned this. yeah, Yeah, if you don't mind me getting into it. I feel like part of the reason I couldn't really get into this book as much as I really wanted to. Like, I loved the characters. I loved a lot of the story. But I feel like it was so much, like, breadth over depth and, like, quantity over quality. As much as I loved the concept, I couldn't really get into it because of, like, anytime I liked something of it, it was just, like, glossed over. <sighs> Maybe it's just, like, the the high fantasy style that I'm not as much of a fan of. But between the the way it was written and the way everything just moved so yeah slowly in the beginning but towards the end yeah just the action was just so compressed and mm-hmm. i was like man like i really wanted more of like that at the end and like i really you know it it really it wasn't there so it's 804 pages is my paperback copy yeah. and i'm pretty sure that it's almost to the page about 400 pages of slow 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 there's important elements that are dropped in but i don't think it's 400 pages of world building it's relationship building mm-hmm. and even then i was disappointed in some of that like mm-hmm. i think it was super interesting to have the whole history of nicolas and his relationship with Dianart, who is a nobleman who cannot marry him because he's he's a commoner and he also needs to have an heir. You know, the issue isn't that there are two men that want to be in a relationship. The issue in the nobility of this world is having an heir. I thought that was really, really interesting because he gives us so much of the background on the alchemical aspects of like why the gemstones are important with the dragons, what where everybody's getting their powers from. But he only really shows up in the other characters' storylines like a couple times. He's a bit of a driving force for Tane. But then really, I felt like the whole time she really just wanted to write a story about a queen falling in love with one of her ladies of the bedchamber. And that was beautifully written, Mm -hmm. but I felt like it took a forefront to, yeah, to world building, to what I thought she was going to be doing at the beginning. And then the last 400 pages, like y'all both just said, are so condensed. Loth makes it to the south. He and Ede meet up again. Tane figures out what's actually happening, like what her history is. The second gem just shows up conveniently in a scar that she's mentioned like twice. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking lazy writing. Like, oh, I'm a descendant of Nipporo. You're the fucking pearl. Exactly. (laughs) And there's this relationship of sisterhood that she has with her dragon. But we get like two scenes with them. And I'm like, so why aren't we getting this building and so that we can feel the grief that Tane feels when in the moments when she's separated from her dragon like this is just kind of anticlimactic 14 years of my life training to be a dragon rider and then you know she's like oh I I did it and then she's like oh I messed up now I don't get to be now I'm a disgraced dragon rider I was like what is this and they just like gloss over the fact that she lost her whole family to a flood. Yeah. And then that's how she gets adopted into this dragon riding training school. And it's like, there's so much grief and interesting back personal back history there. just not covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this should have been split into two books. Either that or like whoever her editor was failed her. Well, as we're going through the summary and like trying to construct what all would have occurred, but in these 800 something pages, I'm like, how do we even pull apart this book? Because it should have been like separated into two books with like, yes, it, yeah, I feel like that would have done the characters more justice. Alex, what you're saying, like, you know, really mm-hmm. diving into like their backstories and like why that matters to their characters and other relationships they have with other characters. Like, I feel like that would have made mm-hmm. for a much better of a read, in my opinion. I don't think it needed to be more books. I think she needed to cut out so much of the bullshit at Sibran's court and mm. make that more coherent too because the the major antagonist at court ends up being a plot twist as well. It mm. ends up being one of the main knights. 
And this character isn't really present in the first half of the book, but this person ends up like holding the queen, basically holding her hostage until Loth and E can make their way back to court. And it just felt like, I think it could all go into one book, but I think she could have cut at least like 200 pages and then maybe just condense some stuff too. Like, it just doesn't make sense for her to spend so much energy on that character background and world building when the characters in some cases resemble each other so much Eid mm-hmm. and Tane both lost parents in a tragic way were raised by people who were not their parents were sent off somewhere else and are alone and also lose their closest me- figure that who's like a sister to them for for Tane it was Su- Susa for Eid it was John Du it was frustrating because it was like these are really really badass characters mm-hmm. but why do they have the same story Mm-hmm. And then everybody who is important to the plot was born into their importance. They are mm-hmm. all come from a bloodline that ends up being significant. Nobody is a commoner who just takes up the sword or takes up the mantle and ends up being a hero. Mm-hmm. Everybody well, is. is. No, Tane is a descendant of Neporo. Yes, but nobody knew that. She was a commoner. She was impoverished. But I mean, even like Eid had a difficult life as well. She wasn't born into the lap of luxury like some of these other characters. But I think it's the point. It's like that they still have this descent, this bloodline descent that determines their significance in the story Mm -hmm. was like in a world where hierarchies are structured around dynasties. I get that. Like that. But for every single character to kind of come from that was just like, what? Yeah, Yeah, it kind of feels a little lazy. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Lazy mm-hmm. writing. That's mm-hmm. what I would say. This felt mm-hmm. like a lot of lazy writing. This is why I say like I would recommend this for the for the queer love factor, mm-hmm. you know. If you're looking for something that's like gonna pull you in, nah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. They use a lot of terms to describe just even what they're wearing mm-hmm. that I was mm-hmm. constantly looking up. Like that mm-hmm. alone left me feeling disengaged. Maybe you're right. Maybe just like cutting out 200 pages of superfluous like details around relationships that aren't actually very instrumental to the plot would have mm-hmm. been enough for it to be properly mm-hmm. fit into one book with the right cadence. It kind of makes like, me wonder it, like what it looked like before the editing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, we talked about the dragon and Tane having this bond of sisterhood that we don't ever really fully understand. Yeah. And then... I think Loth, in his being a very virtuous character, was really interesting because he showed how platonic love is so important. Mm -hmm. And we know that he's he's the queen's best friend. (laughs) Yeah, we get like one scene from his child. We know that he's Eid's closest friend at court as well. We don't get more of it. And I I almost kind of wonder, like, why are these your friends? Given Mm -hmm. everything that we have said about the plot and how the writing lacked building around the things that we actually seem to care about. Which characters did you actually most engage with? I think I like Tane because at first I really thought she was going to be this commoner who had to work crazy hard mm-hmm. to get to where she is. And and you are right that she did do a lot of the work herself, but mm-hmm. all of that just gets dashed away at the end because they're like, here, eat some oranges, have some extra magical powers. <laughs> Why don't you be as much of a Mary Sue as Eid is? And, you know, we're going to yeah. kill this dragon together. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be interesting to have two characters that could resemble each other so much, but could also be very much opposite of each other. But we don't get that, you know? I'm going to echo that because I feel like I really wanted a standalone book of Tene and Susa. And like, yes. I'm like going, like growing up and like, I, mm-hmm. I really wanted to see more of that for sure. I actually think Nick Clay's ended up being my favorite. And it wasn't because... He showed a lot of character growth in the way that I would have liked. Like his character growth was all very much at the end too. Same way everything mm-hmm. else was. It was all right at the, the end. The whole book happens at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to read the book, read the last 400 pages. Ignore <laughs> He brings the humor to the whole book, mm-hmm. you know? I like that he's a little more cynical. He basically feels like he has more depth to me than all of the mm-hmm. other characters. And I like that you find out that he's queer too. And he has this just like, you know, it feels it feels like an undying love for Janart. Like it does it feels like it's very much there for him and he's still mourning him. And I love that the book, you know, has this piece where I think he's going to Janart's grave at the end of the mm-hmm. book. And he sees he meets Janart's widow. 
And she acknowledges their relationship Mm -hmm. and essentially says she never had an issue with it. And I love that he becomes a scholar. You know, it feels very modern that he's like teaching at a university. Uh, But it also feels like it makes the most sense out of everything he went through. You know, he just kind of got dragged around everywhere in the book. Mm -hmm. So I actually hated him at first. I'm like, you're so selfish and self-centered and oh, like, I don't like you. (laughs) But he grew on me. He had a lot of internal monologue that Tene and E do as well, but his was much more nuanced, much more reflexive on his own life. Of course, he's much older. That's That's a good point. But he sounds like an actual human. Yeah. And not just someone who's obsessed with being the best dragon rider or obsessed with making sure that like their priory or their queen is safe, which are are legitimate motivations, but. But it makes them kind of two dimensional, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's what frustrated me in that I could appreciate Eid and Sabran's relationship. I think mm-hmm. I think there was some really, really beautiful texts like written, especially the last night before the battle, and they're saying what they think is might possibly be goodbye. And then later on when they decide when they decide to separate for a time because Sabran has to be queen for a few more years and her plan is to then tell her people that it's fine. I'm not going to have a an heir. So we, there's a lot of loose ends that seem weird. And then Eid leaves to go become the new prioress. Those scenes are really beautiful. But like LeBron comes across as like she's insufferable. I do oh, not like yeah. her. <laughs> she's <laughs> I feel like the only reason their relationship is likable is because Eve won't take her shit. Is because she's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, she's it's true. She's willing to be like, you're not the one that's actually keeping the dragons away. Your your entire family line has been a lie. And yeah. you're, like she's willing to tell her that and to hurt her, like a true friend. That in and of itself was such a missed opportunity. Sabran's whole personality, whole character is built on this like false premise of being part of this line that's keeping the big bad ugly away. And then everything about her belief system is torn out from under her. And I feel like not enough is done with that. People would be like crushed by that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. That's so true. Like, there's so much that she digested so quickly. And that would have been interesting to get that from her point of view. Right. And instead, at the end, they're just like, hey, love you. See you in 10 years. Gotta. (laughs) (laughs) After my kingdom just like accepts that I'm just not going to be queen anymore and have no babies. And I'm like, 10 years? Within the span of like six months, y'all go all over the world killing dragons. But you're like, I'll see you in 10 years. Nuts absolutely unreal (laughs) (laughs) i am so glad that both of y'all feel the same because i was so stoked to read some queer fantasy i was like fuck yeah i don't read a lot of fantasy in general i don't read a lot of high fantasy but i was like cool and then part of it too i think is that when i do read fantasy i don't think i'm there for the romance i think i'm there for the politics and the Mm -hmm. politics of this book was really lackluster yes this book was also so popular that i had such high expectations for it people compare it to other really popular fantasy series and Mm -hmm. i just what has it been compared to where i find a book in a bookstore i feel like is really like telling as to like how people Mm. perceive the book it's always placed near akatar stuff like that that's big Mm. on like book talk so i do feel like it is compared to those just because they might have similar readers we talked about how this was only one book it's a one hitter but there is a prequel that came out mm-hmm. in February, and there is a book two announced. The series is The Roots of Chaos, which I think is part of the problem because the whole conflict is between chaos and order, good and bad. And I think that that ends up just getting seeped into the politics. You're either a good guy or you're a bad guy. And I think we all liked Nicholas and Tane to a certain extent. Because they're not all good or all bad, Mm -hmm. but everybody else is. That's such a good point. Like, I think it was meant to be that black and white. I think the conflict Mm -hmm. was meant to reflect the fact that society had become so divisive. But I agree. It gets kind of boring. Yeah. It wasn't really obvious to me why society became so black and white. It has been a thousand years that we've been telling this new version of events in Innis. And there's no dissenters. Nicholas is the only person, who, because, and he's a foreigner too. There's nobody else in the kingdom of Innis who has bothered to ask themselves questions and wonder, like, maybe this isn't really how it happened. That I find unbelievable. Human history mutates everything. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it felt like a 
a kingdom of NPCs walking around rather yeah. than like actual people. <laughs> yeah, I feel like in a single 50 years of real life, so much happens. Like a thousand years of just that sort of stark divide, that doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. That doesn't make sense. She had and 800 like if, pages to get around to it, so. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. She would have covered it in three pages at the end anyway, but she yeah. could have covered it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it had enough to keep me interested, obviously, to the end, even though, like, I think if I had started it on my own and actually made it maybe at least 250 pages, and I probably would have finished it, because I don't think it's actually as dense as it looks. There is an aspect of like wanting this to look and feel like a high fantasy book that she felt like it just had to be a certain length and a certain size. Maybe that marketing angle. Mm -hmm. Fantasy readers come to expect a certain amount of world building and like lore from the that from a marketing perspective. Yeah, to some degree, like I feel like readers of that genre do come to expect that. The one other series that I've read is that that reminds me of this is Aragon. It was similar in that there was a lot of divide between the cultures of the book but the cadence and world building was was done a lot better there's a lot of context a lot of background a lot of detail but I don't know I mean each book in that series was not as fat as this one I kind of assumed that the reason it was so fat was because it was meant to just be a knowledge uh, a novel not just a not a trilogy a trilogy <laughs> the next one's gonna be a Hawthorne and then the next one's gonna be the Mulberry <laughs> Ah, I see what you did there. As I was curled over this 800 pages like a fucking shrimp for the past two weeks, I decided yesterday that I was going to sit down and do the math on how much goddamn paper was wasted. We've already discussed about how the writing could have cut down, but I think that the publisher could have also done a better job. This was 12-point letting which usually means that you have like a 12 point font and 120%. So about 14 point of line spacing that's used a lot nowadays. But I think that a lot of high fantasy, like in the tradition also has tighter letting too. And that also makes the book feel like it's something older. It makes it feel like it's an artifact. I basically did a breakdown of my paperback copy. So we have six sections like it's break it broken up into tomes and each section has a quote at the beginning so we have a verso page with a minimal amount of text on it there's also the recto of those pages completely blank and then the recto after the section title pages and then the ones before that if the chapter ended on a verso page and then we have 716 pages of full text this doesn't account for the last pages of chapters some of the chapters obviously the, the last lines don't cover the full page but just let's just go ahead and say 760 pages of full text pages that had a total of 352.6 centimeters of square surface area obviously there's always going to be some margins that you lose but the margins were really big so the letting was I think large and the margins were kind of big and that means that we only ended up having a 55.74 percent usage for text coverage on each page and then if you go to the first pages of the chapter, this one made me really mad. It's only, it goes down to 34.3% of usage of the actual page. More than half of the page is just blank. Yeah. I mean, even if we are not going to change anything from the text, there's so much that could have been like done in the design for this book so that it could have been a more ecological printing and mm-hmm. just like specifically catered to me. But this <laughs> made me very angry. I can speak to the blank pages thing a little bit. Books are printed in like sections. They're called folios. They'll have like flyleafs at the end, which are the blank pages. If like the book just doesn't take up enough of the folio, so mm. the ten blank pages or whatever, I guess it's just like she didn't have enough text to fill it up. It's- That's bull because this so- isn't even counting the annexes at the end that lists yeah. all the different types, all the different characters. Not even including a comprehensive list of the different types of dragon type creatures. The whole time I was like, I still need a primer on how these different creatures work and where their powers come from. There's room because there's paratext mm-hmm. that could have been worked with at that level. There was more margin to work with than I oh, think for they sure. looked for. Absolutely. So funny. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even if you don't work with the margins, I really think the letting could have been smaller because Garamond is like one of the most accessible and easily readable fonts as well. It's why it's so often used in fiction. I'm just worried about how much paper we're using. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hear you. So the second time reading this through, I paid more attention to the map. Mm -hmm. And people seem to love this map. 
but it, I felt like he left out a lot of things, you know? I want to say Hey Pisson, which, like, kept coming up, wasn't even on the map. So much of it is centered around this idea of East versus West. The map was decorative. It was not informative. Yeah. And the East and West, yeah, it's like this interesting dichotomy, but it gets really annoying when all of your chapter titles are either East or West, but the character comes from one direction and is in another, and then all of a sudden they end up somewhere else, and it's not clear that it's the same character in the next chapter, and they're in a different direction. It's also like East and West are relative. Mm Mm-hmm. East mm-hmm. of where I've seen it done before in in fantasy or historical fiction where there's actually the title is like the location of where the person is, which I think would have been much more interesting. Yeah. And then also would have helped referencing the map as is a lot more. Between the audiobook and the Kindle, because I just switched back and forth. I wasn't able to reference like any of the stuff in the back and like the map really mm-hmm. well. And like it just I don't know, it wasn't very clear at times what was going on sometimes. <laughs> So how do you feel having listened to this book? Would you say that you read the book? Would you say that you know mm. the book? Would you like, would you say you listened to the book? I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, oh yeah, I read the book. And then they're talking to me about it and they're like, I listened to the audiobook, And I'm like, you didn't read that book. <laughs> you know that book. <laughs> That's so funny. How, what would you say? I always specify when I listen to an audiobook, like, because I feel like it does change the experience of you know, your your knowledge of the book. I mean, I would say that I read the book. Okay. Smitha, what I'm hearing is you echoing something I've heard a lot from people who grew up reading a lot. Like you told yeah. us earlier, I was a language teacher for several years in my past mm-hmm. life. And one thing that I remember being, being very surprised to learn is that there's there's really no hierarchy to reading versus listening. It completely depends on the individual. And some people will actually retain a lot more if they listen to a 25-hour audiobook versus if they were to sit down and try to read the 800 pages themselves. No, I'm on the same page as you. Like I, I can't, I'm not an auditory learner. I find that I have to be doing something super mindless at the same time to stay engaged, but not get distracted. To bring it back to the book a little bit, I feel like the reason why uh, I, I, that I kept switching back and forth between the the Kindle and the audiobook was because I was having such a hard time engaging with it. So maybe that's part of it. But I'm on page 767 of my copy and I literally had written, what is Kelipa's origin? What is Nipora's origin? I have too many questions at this stage. Yes. <laughs> I have so many because questions really at this time. <laughs> in like the last 50 pages that we really yeah. only get answers. I, I would have loved to have learned more about Kaliba's whole story. You don't really meet any other character in the book that has been alive for so long and is warped like her. You know, the dragons mm-hmm. have been alive for so long, but they're very, very stable. Very like, they're like all moral compasses and like gods or whatever. They're just perfect. Yeah. But kaliba has been around for forever and she's super messed up. <laughs> I wanted to understand so that origin of the magic piece. Why does the orange tree give magic powers that can be used but not give eternal life? And why did the hawthorn tree give her eternal life? Didn't she have a mix of, you know how they had the, like two types of magic? One is like star magic and other is like earth magic. I thought it was because she had both. Yeah, man, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see if maybe like the prequel had more information i'm not sure that it does the prequel is 880 pages <laughs> like uh it doesn't take place a thousand years prior the prequel does it just takes place at some point between when there was the original age of the dragons and then the events of priory of the orange tree interesting yeah i can't decide if i would read the prequel or the second book no yeah. i don't know I don't know if curiosity is strong enough. Mm. Maybe an audiobook at like 1.5 or two times the speed. <laughs> I was yeah. doing it on 1.5 and like even then I was like, oh my god. <laughs> the number Probably. of times that I wrote in the margins make it make sense. And it's only because we're just missing information. It's like it, it almost felt like she started her world building by writing and not by actually planning. Yes, yes. That feels so accurate now that you say it out loud. Like she just needed a world to put Eden Sabran's romance into. Because I really think that was her focus. Like at the end of the book, when all the characters are listed, 
the first four are in their own list. It's called the storytellers and it's Itane, Loth, and Nicholas, but they're not given equal weight. Yeah. Like maybe this could have been broken up into different books that are happening concurrently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's too many things happening at the same time. And I feel like they need to be like separated into different pieces because like while this can all happen concurrently, sure, in the same universe, whatever, to have this many like storytellers, too much. The timelines too, they don't match up. So you'll bounce back and forth, but they're progressing at different times. Even maybe just having like your first tome be like everything that's happening in Innis at Severance Court. Mm-hmm. Then your next one is every the story of Tane starting from when she is adopted into the Medici dragon riding clan. And then, you know, and then another story that's Nicholas. Like, I think that that would have been a lot more coherent instead of trying to bounce back and forth and like reify this East versus West that we we get it. Like, yeah. y'all don't like each other. I kind of understand why it's combined into one book because they're all ultimately building to the same climax and I feel like anytime you have a book that is just purely set up for like a battle in another book like people are super disappointed like well then the chapters should have had the dates and the locations yes more readily indicated yeah yeah what is it they're like the next comment is coming in spring and that was supposed to be what like four or six months away and then it's like so much happens in those months i'm like how long are each of these seafaring journeys taking like <laughs> for real loth leaves and he's gone for months but really he like he took months long to get to the eastern kingdom and then he spends three days there before he escapes like what? so much yeah. build up for, for in, in so many different places so much build up for so many different like elements that did not end up being as important what ended up being some of the most memorable scenes for you? Because you would think people would be like, oh, the battle scene, the big battle scene. But I found it super disappointing. It's but- hard to picture the battle scene when we don't even know how big the dragons are because we don't yeah. get their scale ever. Like, Yeah. They just say they're, it's bit, he's bigger than all of the other dragons. I'm like, I don't even know. Tane and her dragon, you don't know the size difference. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The part where Susa and Tane sort of separate because that was kind of something where where that was I don't know like I I did want more there and I did find that to be really memorable but like at this you know while still you know leaving something to be desired there so yeah. What about you, Alex? There's mm-hmm. like so many points where I felt like the writing could have just been like slightly polished instead of using a pronoun use the actual name of the character because then yes. we actually know what the fuck is happening not loth walking on in on his sister who's looking down at the body of her very injured fiance and he says it is done he is dead what her fiance died when and no he's just talking about the big bad dragon is finally dead and so it actually had like lots of little really funny images in my head that didn't make sense i i felt that a lot with just like the amount of women that would be in each scene and mm-hmm. sometimes she would just be using the pronoun she who did we just switch to mm-hmm. in this yeah. room i'm not sure i don't know so 100 i think the the military scenes too were pretty lackluster like when the second dragon the white wyvern wyvern, mm-hmm. wyvern. Come, the one that ends up attacking sebron and who then we later find out ends up being caliba disguised as a dragon because she's trying to get the evil to win now and they're like in the middle of the courtyard and they're not moving and it's like every single knight that is surrounding the queen would have known that a moving target is better than one that is a sitting duck they just don't move in what is supposedly a really big courtyard there's moments where with the dragon fighting she talks about this dragon moves back into formation there's no formation if the dragon is flying alone that's not how military formations work so it just like made it, it like took me out of the scene, but also like made the scene super disjointed and it didn't make sense sometimes. Yeah, none of the battles were high yeah. on my list. The scenes where Tane is is uh, battling with the other apprentices before they become part of the high sea guard. Mm-hmm. Those were some of my favorite just because it was yeah. nice to see like how exactly they would be put to the test. There is a funny moment with Onren, her other friend who does become a dragon rider and is in the final scene. 
and uh-huh. Onren catches her and puts her on the back of her dragon with her. And uh-huh. Tane is like, no, this is against the rules. And it's like, you're in the middle of a fucking battle. <laughs> They're bigger fish to fry. Like yeah. you're worried about riding somebody else's dragon and bringing shame in this moment right here. Yeah. How uptight she was, I feel like also made it hard for me to be engaged with her character. I kind of forgot about the scene. And then when I was reading, I was like, oh, yeah, this creepy scene when they're looking for Ascalon, the sword, and how they had to like go down that creepy rabbit hole to get to the underground. It actually creeped me out. Like, I remember reading it at night and I was like, I'm a little wigged out right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. Because they're like right before they're there, it's on the Becca State. Loth yeah. is on another mission to to the Twelve Lakes Kingdom, so they're there with Margaret, who has to pretend like her brother is dead, so that her father, who's like got dementia of some kind, thinks mm-hmm. that she's the new heir, and he has to tell her where the hiding place is. Of yeah, and so you have this like super emotional thing. Then they go into the woods, is super creepy, and then Kaliba shows up, and we actually get some freaking answers. It's not peanuts anymore. That you're that was such a good chapter. You're so right. Yeah. That was such yeah. a good chapter. I was like, I need more of this. Yeah. <laughs> There was just so much. There was just so much. There was just a lot of not fully realized intentions in the writing. Mm. And it just felt like, like their religion is imposed on the people and there's no questioning it. Super fascist. But then how were they able to keep this brand of fascism going for a thousand years? There were like two different types of dissenters they talked about. Like basically anybody that I guess supports the wyverns or whatever you know the evil dragons they're the ones Mm -hmm. that will get like burnt alive i think in the square do you remember this not at all was this at the beginning i think this was more towards the beginning yeah but but i'm just saying there were like serious consequences to Mm -hmm. being a center What are your thoughts on how social hierarchies are structured in the societies depicted Mm. aside from it's bullshit (laughs) solid answer it's such a like patriarchal society through and Mm -hmm. through yeah mostly just i i'm glad that by the end we're like fuck sargallion he didn't do anything useful two women saved the day and maybe screw the patriarchy who knows because everything's too vague at the end to know Fair enough. But even like the matriarchal setup, the priory, the men that work for the priory, they're servants, but some of them, it's pretty, it's pretty clear that they're basically enslaved and they've been given different potions to help them forget their life outside of the priory so that they'll never want to leave. I was like, yeah, supposed to be good. That's messed up. Rough. Sabran's father, the man who raised her was a prince that married her, her mother, the previous queen. But it's highly implied that her actual biological father was a Navy captain who's still alive, John uh, John Harlow. It's never confirmed fully. And even he, but he kind of like hint hints and he's like, some things are better left unsaid, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) But like, why does it matter? It's the Queen's lineage that matters. So what is, why does it matter? (sighs) Shaky. Thank you, right? was able to kind of get where I was like, okay, some couple of things have to happen because they have to make a baby. But like other things, I was just like, I don't, I, I don't see turkey basters. Oh my God. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But with the Sabrin's luck, it would have been like some warlocks baby sperm or something like some other random plot twist that would have just come out in the end. And then we would have been like, oh, that too. And Alex would have written again. I need answers. <laughs> make it make sense. Make it make sense. <laughs> and it probably would have added another 300 pages. So I think we're, you know, it's nice yeah. that we didn't. <laughs> yep. Any thoughts on the role of religion in the various societies and the plot? I mean, I think Alex said it well in that it's kind of strange to think that such a rigid structure that's so based on religion would have survived a thousand years and Mm -hmm. there aren't more dissenters and there aren't more factions of people that are like, screw virtuedom. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely would have been more interesting to explore the idea of a disagreement with that religion in the West Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. because it's clearly there. I found it a tad bit boring that so much of their divide was just about this religion, which is really just founded on the myth around how 
the big bad evil was banished a thousand years ago. It would have been nice if there had been more to it than religion, but that is a very realistic approach. Religion does tend to be a big divisive factor in history. So I see why she did it, but I found it kind of boring. She didn't take it all the way because if you look at religious conflict in actual human history, Yes, a lot of times it will come down to the interpretation of a single story or the interpretation of single elements, but the conflict surrounding that is much more complex than what she created, which was just basically like, you like worms and we don't. Yeah. Yeah. What are you reading right now and what media are you watching or listening to? Um, Very in line with this, I'm watching a show called A Discovery of Witches. <laughs> It's like a slightly more evolved version of Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, The characters are definitely hotter. They're all like British. So (laughs) that's nice. In terms of other things I'm reading right now, honestly, I was just I was just trying to get through this book, man. It was was kind of (laughs) rough the second time. Anything else on your radar, like in terms of Mm. next next reads? Oh, you know what I do want to read next? I want to read Page Boy because I got oh, to see yeah. I got to see Elliot Page in New York the very first day the book came out. He did like a book release event. Oh, shit. And I purchased one of like the signed books and everything. And I've heard it's it's really good. So oh, yeah. it's a good year for celebrity memoirs. What is your most controversial mm-hmm. opinion on a book or in reading in general? I mean, probably what I said earlier, if you listen to the book, you didn't read it. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I see. (laughs) I acknowledge what Alex said. You know, she has a good point, but still. (laughs) Someone tells me to listen to the book in my head. I'm like, girl, you didn't read that book. I'm sorry. (laughs) Smitha also doesn't think anybody wrote the book unless they actually hand wrote it. So... (laughs) Oh, typing doesn't count, I guess, right? <laughs> if you could roast any book, what book would it be? Ooh. The Left Hand of Darkness. Oh, I Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, I think it would be fun to roast this one because I feel that it is just like a quintessential sci-fi novel. But I had a lot of trouble even getting halfway through it. So I feel like I would have a lot to say about why I was having a hard time getting through it. Hopefully one day I'll finish it and understand why everybody is in love with it. A lot of Le Guin's legacy is that she establishes a lot of the tropes that keep coming up in popular literature today. She's also like, I kind of did like some theory work as well, as far as like storytelling theory. And so I think one of the reasons why she became such a, like a pillar of sci-fi and fantasy in the Western world is because she really did the work when I was reading Earths, yeah, I was kind of like, eh, yeah, it's fun. It's cool. It's interesting. But it's like, meh. and so I wonder how much of it is because we're reading it now and we have all this literary baggage of everything else we've read, but that is so dependent on her. That yeah. is interesting to like put it more in context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important context. I didn't realize that that is why she's such a big name is because she's established a lot, like, mm-hmm. you know, she was the torchbearer, essentially. Thank you so much for for joining us today, Smitha. We had a lovely conversation about a brick of a book. (laughs) Thank you for committing and rereading. Yeah. So impressive. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Alex, for you, is this a read or a roast? Mm. I want to say that we're probably in agreement here for the second time in history. Yeah. I mean, I let me lay it out. I found the queer relationships and the approach to them super refreshing. Mm-hmm. Right. But I found the whole world around that just super untenable. Mm-hmm. And as interested as I was in the details that did work, mm-hmm. it is a roast. Yes, we we certainly are in agreement there. I think that there were just so many, there were things I wanted more of, there were things I wanted less of. Yeah. Um, There were pieces that went unanswered, like just random things that fell off the face of the earth. And I just, yeah, I like we were discussing, I feel like this definitely could have been restructured in a way that made more sense for the story Mm -hmm. she wanted to tell. 
you know, maybe the prequel and sequel answer that. I don't know. I but don't it's know another find... 880 exactly. pages of prequel. I don't, like... I don't know if I'll find out, to be honest. So for that, I'll, give, I'll, I'll call it a roast as well. I think it became pretty clear for me that this was going to start nosediving in the storytelling and world building quality was when I was consistently asking myself, why is Eid so sure in her conviction that her version of mythical events of their of her religion is the one true version, mm-hmm. whereas everybody else around her is just as convinced that they are in the right? Mm-hmm. And then we only finally get some answers to that in the last 300 pages of an 800-page book. And I just felt like if I were a faith haver, I would need more at that point. Mm-hmm. And so as an external reader, yeah, I just yeah. can't buy into it. Yeah. One of those instances of like perhaps a writer who hasn't, I don't want to say matured enough, but hasn't like been able to take everything that she has in her head and put it on the page as properly as she wants it to in a way that makes sense to other people. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe it was poor editing. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination, but I, like I said, I liked the, the idea and yeah, the, I loved the way the queer relationships were presented, but um, it just wasn't like a satisfying read at all. So. Mm-hmm. And like I, like I said, I did keep jumping back and forth between the audiobook and the Kindle. And part of it was like for convenience, but also part of it was because I was like trying to keep it fresh. Because um, like it was honestly like at, at times pulling teeth. I wasn't engaged for a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. It, it really did feel like she started writing before she started planning. And like you just said, she hasn't really thought about how this could come across to other readers. Mm-hmm. But I guess I can also see why it was really popular. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like people want to see themselves in literature and like mm-hmm. that makes absolute sense for sure yeah if i if i weren't reading this in the context of this podcast i think i would be as just as disappointed oh i think i would have dnf'd it for sure but, yeah um, yeah it made me mm-hmm. think of our long reading challenge that we did a couple of years ago with ducks newberry port which is like a thousand pages and that is super dense i did not do the math on the letting and the layout of the text it's a completely different type of read it's a completely different genre mm-hmm. but i I never complained about the length of Ducks and I was always complaining about the length of Priory, even mm-hmm. though this was not nearly as dense and mm-hmm. I think but with therein Ducks, lies the issue. Yeah. With Ducks, I feel like the length was part of the point. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas with this book, it felt so extraneous. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I just, it was part of the shtick of the whole, yeah. you know, like, I don't know, but like um, the form, the form does service to the artwork overall. Exactly. Versus here, you're trying to use the form to do something that you don't really need it to do anyway. Like Mm -hmm. you can, I mean, if you even think about like arguably the most famous fantasy, high fantasy franchise of all times, The Lord of the Rings and the Mm -hmm. whole Middle Earth universe, those books Mm -hmm. are not that big. And there's a lot of history. There's Mm -hmm. a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that just gets glossed over when you're reading Mm -hmm. the trilogy or Mm -hmm. The Hobbit that you only find out and fully understand if you've read the Silmarillion or if you've read other texts, Mm -hmm. but it's okay because the story is told in such, is presented in such a way that a reader who's not going to go read those other texts is going to be able to appreciate it nonetheless. But like the whole time we were talking, I was just kind of thinking about one of my most recent five-star reads, which was Sea of Tranquility. And I was just thinking about how like short and succinct it was and how every Mm -hmm. single piece of action, dialogue, whatever had a point. And, like, I just thought, like, what a difference between a text like that and a text like this. You know what I mean? That was one of the few books that I read where I said this could have been longer. Maybe not. But, like, I I just, I was blown away by it. I don't know. There's a reason St. John Mandel is, you know, what she is. But I think that, uh, you know, maybe she could take a page out of her book. No more extra pages for Shannon. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) It is such a good feeling when you finish a book. And you're disappointed that there isn't more. It's so satisfying as a reader. Yeah. Ugh, like if somebody made like a great illustrated classics version of this book, it would be better mm-hmm. than the original Prior to the Orange Tree. If a book has a map, I want it to do something and not just be decorative, especially if cardinal points are going to be so important to the way you tell your story. Mm-hmm. You know, if the queer romance in the central part of the book is that that important to the book. I don't want them to just depart with the promise to see each other after a decade. Maybe. 
know. Yeah. And also under contexts that don't seem very likely to happen. Right. But maybe the sequel will answer that. I don't know. Anyway, thank you. That will be up for <laughs> someone else to let us know. For sure. Let's ask our listeners, what do you think? Is this title a read or a roast? Do you have a better read to recommend that hits the same as Priory of the Orange Tree? Mm. Or better. Or better. <laughs> <laughs> well. Should we drop some hints? Hmm. Perhaps we can. What are we thinking? I mean, I'm thinking that we're kind of on thin ice. Nice. Given that we have two books to read. In that we will be roasting each other's titles. Yes. I'm looking forward to the finale. We're doing a bit of um, an exploration into a specific genre as well. <laughs> thank yeah, you very thank much. You. Yeah. I can't wait to read these. This has been Read It and Roast with Alex and Claire. Musical composition by Kate Bundy. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Read It and Roast, as well as like and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for posts, roasts, and more.